This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Several months ago, we planned the release of this specific story for September 10th to mark National Suicide Prevention Week. This story deals quite frankly with the realities and unknowns of suicide and specifically postpartum depression. What we could not predict, however, is that this podcast would be released in an unfortunately prescient moment. At the time of this recording, Texas lawmakers have enacted the most restrictive abortion law in the nation, putting a near-complete ban on safe, legal abortions throughout the state. This law also allows private citizens to sue abortion providers and anyone else who helps someone obtain an abortion. Private citizens who bring these suits don't even need to show any connection to those they are suing. An Uber driver, for example, could be sued by a stranger for unknowingly driving someone to an abortion appointment. As this week's story from Julie Lambert explores, pregnancy itself is hard and giving birth and raising an infant is no easier. Discussing the sometimes brutal reality of maternal health and postpartum depression is necessary in order to provide parents with the care they need. This story does not shy away from these harsh truths, so please take care of yourself if you feel this type of content will be upsetting. Recorded live at Pub 626 in September 2019, Second Story is proud to present Mother's Day. The scream of sirens travels down my street. From my living room window, I watch the ambulance and a bright red fire truck snake past parked cars and stop at the sidewalk leading to the front door of our small Cape Cod. My baby in my arms feels heavy and soft. She shifts position and points outside, her blue eyes looking up at me in wonderment. A few minutes earlier, I'd found her sitting on the living room floor with a bright orange strand of Raggedy Ann's hair hanging from her lip, the doll still clutched in her small, sweaty hands. Had she eaten more strands? The hair was made out of rough-to-the-touch, straggly yarn that easily separated into slinky, wet pieces. As I bent down to pick her up, she started coughing. I pried open her mouth with my hand and ran a finger along the roof, the cheeks, and the teeth to clear out any other stray pieces. I didn't find any, but she started coughing again, and I couldn't tell if she was startled by my sudden forceful action or if she was choking on another piece of yarn in her throat. That's it, I thought. I'm not taking any chances. I'm calling 911. Two months earlier in May, a friend called me. She left a message the day before saying that she needed to talk. I thought she was going to tell me that she was pregnant. And instead she said, Julie, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Kristen died. She had postpartum depression and I, I, I guess it just it got the best of her. I had been holding my baby in the nursery when I answered the phone. I put her down in the crib and I moved away from her. What? I said, what? I couldn't understand what she was saying to me, the meaning of her words. Kristen, the best of her, she was dead? It just didn't make any sense. Kristen wasn't depressed. At least, I didn't think she was depressed. 
And how could the best of her be dead? Okay, so this is what I knew. I knew that Kristen was a painter. She wanted to paint more. I knew that she, her husband, and her two young daughters had returned recently to the States from India, where her husband had been working for about a year. I knew that she had had help caring for her children and running a household in India. And I knew that after her return, she had her third child, a son, in late December, about a week after I gave birth to my fourth child. She and I actually hadn't stayed in very close contact when she was India, in India, but now that she was back, we were planning to get together again soon, once we both adjusted to having larger families. And I was looking forward to spending more time with her, becoming closer friends. The ringing sirens stop outside my house. Taking a moment to compose myself and consider what I'm going to say, I open the front door and step aside, allowing the humid summer air and four firemen to enter my front hall. They fill the space with their bodies, the heavy smell of canvas, rubber, and grease. We say hello, and they wait expectantly for me to explain the reason for their appearance at my house. The baby is quiet now. Her curiosity piqued by these strangers crossing over our threshold, and I feel the heat bloom in my cheeks as I begin my quickly rehearsed speech. I'm sorry, I start. I think she swallowed some yarn from a stuffed doll that she was chewing on, and I, I thought she was maybe choking. My words falter as I look down at my baby, who appears quite content, and notice my bare feet. I hold onto the staircase railing to steady myself. I need them to understand the urgency I had felt earlier when I looked at the red, agitated face of my sputtering daughter. The firemen stare at me and ask questions. Without taking his eyes off my face, one of them asks, are you alone in the house? No, I respond, my kids are all here. Are there any other adults? My eyes make a brief sweep of the rooms around us. Does it look like there are any other adults here? No, just me. Actually, I don't remember if this was the first choking incident that summer or the second, but there was another time when the baby had a coughing fit and I took her over to a neighbor's house to a woman who was a first grade teacher and probably knew all kinds of things about children that I didn't. I asked her if she thought it looked like my daughter was choking. The baby had just started to eat solid foods and sometimes it was difficult to tell if she swallowed the food or if she was storing it in her gorgeously round cheeks. I just wanted another set of adult eyes on her to reassure me that she wasn't choking. My neighbor laughed, waved off my question and said, no, the baby looks fine. My neighbor's husband, standing off to the side, said nothing, just looked at me, askew. The fireman continues to ask me questions. How old are the other children? My eldest daughter, standing off to the side in the entryway to the kitchen, listens intently. Uh, seven, five, and three, I respond. I see myself through their eyes, a woman about 40, dressed in jeans, hair pulled into a messy ponytail, alone in a house with four small children. You see, I knew the signs of postpartum depression. I knew that there were three types, the baby blues, postpartum depression, and psychosis. 
My first child was born in early March 2002 in the middle of a snowstorm after a typically long and dark Chicago winter. Less than a week after she was born, if I tried to sleep, film clips of violence done to women streamed behind my eyelids in a repeating loop. Women who were bruised, beaten, raped, tortured, strangled, chopped up, decapitated. How would I ever keep my daughter safe in a world like this? Sometime in the months after her birth, my mother-in-law asked me if I was depressed. I don't remember how I responded, but I remember not wanting to carry my daughter into the kitchen. There were too many hot surfaces, too many sharp objects. I couldn't control my thoughts or my visions. In early August, eight months after my daughter's birth, I called a friend who was an ER doc, and I asked her to come over so I could talk to her. I told her that I could see myself hanging in the bathroom. She said, now you're scaring me. I thought if I told anyone what I was experiencing, they would take the baby away from me, and then I wouldn't be able to protect her, and that would be worse. By my daughter's first birthday, I was pregnant with my second child, followed by the birth of two more children before my oldest child turned seven. I knew the signs of trouble. I knew that I could keep the depression and anxiety at arm's length if I was careful, if I avoided the things that triggered me, movies, news stories, talking to my mother. <laughs> after my death, after, sorry, after my friend's death by suicide, I felt her presence just over my left shoulder. If I went into my basement, I had to turn on all the lights so there were no dark corners. Throughout the day, I could sense her. If I glanced up quickly, I thought I just might catch a glimpse of her. Even in death, she continued to perform her motherly tasks dutifully, washing the dishes, switching the loads of laundry, changing diapers right alongside me. Her hands were moving as my hands moved. She was my shadow. She was so close. I kept seeing flashes of her, the blue stone in her wedding band, her surprisingly large hands and feet, her dark curly hair. I could hear her voice speaking to her children, saying their names. I didn't understand and I wanted to understand. I wanted to know why. I wanted to have one last conversation with her and ask her what happened. It just didn't make any sense to me. I wanted to go back and tell her about my own struggle with postpartum depression. I could have shared that with her so that she would know that it wasn't easy for anyone, that she wasn't alone. Stop the charade of motherhood coming naturally, acting like all of it was just effortless. I wanted one more conversation with her so I could change what happened, so I could change her mind. Encircled by paramedics and children in my front hall, my mind prickles and I begin to wonder if they're assessing my child or assessing me. Am I okay? Am I okay? Alarmed, I repeat my reason for dialing 911. She was just choking and making noises like she was having trouble breathing. I just wanted to be sure that she was okay. Another fireman looks down at my baby, checks her face, her breathing, and his face settles. 
She seems okay, I think. Yes, I think so too. She does seem fine now. Okay, thanks. Thanks for coming out. Sorry to bother you. Have a nice day. Kristen and I were about the same age. We went to the same college. We both married, settled in the same part of the country, had children the same ages, even sons who shared the same first name. How could she leave her children? How was I different from her? I was haunted by these two questions. Years will pass before I sit down at my desk one morning and have something like my last conversation with her. For reasons that I can't explain to you, writing what might have happened gives me a sense of closure. It's not an answer and it's not an explanation, but it's the only thing that I have to offer. Let me tell you what I see. It was a sunny day, four days after Mother's Day. Trees jammed with chirping birds. She hired a babysitter to take the girls to school in the morning because she wanted to be alone with the baby. And when the babysitter arrived, the girls were fed and dressed. She kissed each one of them, hugged them tightly, taking a moment to look at each of their faces. They were seven and five, her beautiful girls. She said goodbye, and she watched them walk down the driveway to the sidewalk. The school was only four blocks away. They would be there early and could play on the playground until the bell rang. She closed the door and walked back to the kitchen, swooping the baby up out of his high chair to hear his squeaky laugh. It didn't matter if he was done with his breakfast or not. She wanted to nurse him. She carried him upstairs, jostling him on her hip. Soft and warm, the curls stuck to the back of his sweaty neck, heavy in her arms for just six months. She sang and cooed to him as she laid him on the changing table, and he grabbed a strand of her long, dark hair as it dangled over his face. She gently batted it away from him so that she could see him, his smile as she sang to him. And when she finished, she sat down in the nursing chair and lifted her shirt so that he found her nipple easily. Short, sharp tugs and bursts of milk at first, and then as he settled down, longer gulps of contentment, the milk draining from her. She let him nurse for as long as he liked, and when she finally pulled him away from her breast, she looked into his easy brown eyes, whispered a prayer, and laid him down in his crib. She knew she had to do this part quickly. She pulled her arms away from him, turned on his mobile, and walked out the door, leaving it halfway open so that the babysitter would hear him if he cried. She looked into each of the bedrooms just for a moment, the sun streaming and lighting up the hallway. There wasn't much time. She headed to the basement. Everything was waiting for her. She had set it up the night before. As she turned and closed the door to the basement, she locked it, just to be sure she had enough time. How am I different from her? I don't really know. Maybe the soft downy fuzz of my baby's head grounds me, the scent of her newly born flesh fresh in my nostrils, the joy I feel when I'm holding her and her body is pressed against mine. There is nothing else quite like it. She is mine and I am hers. 
I show the fireman out the door and am greeted by the dizzying summer perfume of the heat mixed with dirt. I watch them walk down our paved stone path, past the roses tangled with the coneflowers, the flocks entwining with the lavender, catmint. The men get into their shiny vehicles and each car door closing resounds off the hot asphalt. They turn on the engines and drive into the cul-de-sac to turn around. Coming back again, they drive away from the little yellow house with the teal green shutters. This story was curated by Lizzie Dzinski and Julie Ganey, produced by Kit Ryan, and directed by Dorothy Milne and Dion, with music and sound design by Michael Benedict. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. <laughs>